This is the Straight Dope, episode 36. Observation of 150 shooters. I had the opportunity to RO the Buffalo Bills NRL Hunter match this weekend. So I got to watch 150 shooters go through a stage over the course of the weekend and observe how they tackled uh, my, my particular stage. So all of these observations are off of a two-target, two-position stage, but it was pretty cool to do, and I have a ton of notes that I left each day with, and I'm going to talk about those. It could probably turn into a couple episodes, but I'm going to try to go through the short and dirty here for us to figure out what the best way to learn about our own circumstances is watching other people. So without uh, further ado, let's get started. I'm going to go top down. It's, it's not necessarily in a particular order, but the top I have gear management. The shooters that I observed do the best on my stage, and, and there weren't that many cleans, had the least amount of equipment. Now, I tried to take note of what equipment shooters used to accomplish the problem solving of the positions on my stage. And there was a a couple of minute details that were important, but I did notice that the cleans that were done and the sevens were done with the least amount of equipment. The more equipment shooters had, the more time they spent trying to build the positions. And then some of the positions that they built ended up being misses that were high and low. And we'll discuss my thoughts on that later. So, Rather than particular pieces of equipment that was used, because there was a variety of ways to solve the problem, I did note that the shooters had the least amount of equipment. The biggest kind of shit shows were the ones that used too much gear. So trying to use two or three bags, plus tripods, plus maneuvering around and not considering where they were able to actually see the targets from, and it turned into a logistical nightmare for those shooters. And and although the amount of shooting time that took place on the stage wasn't such that a lot of shooters timed out, what I did notice is that their head went from locate the target, range it, engage it, to to kind of flustered and unable to think through the process. And, And more often than not, the shooters that struggled with their equipment also struggled with the shooting. So there was a relationship uh, between setting up and shooting versus setting up wrestling with your gear and then kind of taking frustrated shots that may not have actually been stable in the first place. Um, that was the gear management issue. Now, when it comes to gear management, the most efficient shooters were able to get from the start point to the observation point in about 10 seconds. It was it was. 10 to 12 seconds on average. So it wasn't a long distance to travel. Uh, Some people walked, some people ran, and that didn't seem to have an influence on my particular stage because we weren't going very far. And actually, there was, uh, on day two, there was almost no wind, and we started because the first first day people shot 12 stages and the second uh, stage people shot seven. There was, I want to say, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 shooters backed up at the staging area and from the staging area with that many people they could actually see the shooters in front of them so on day two it really wasn't a blind stage and there was no way to really police them so it was just on the shooters to decide if they wanted to stand there and watch a dozen to 15 
uh, people in front of him shoot. And, um, you know, I've heard arguments at other events that allowed or didn't necessarily allow, but there, there wasn't much you could do to prevent people from seeing where missed shots went because dust went flying everywhere and so on and so forth. So uh, by the end of the second, by, you know, after, after that first start on stage two, um, it was pretty obvious that people knew where the targets were because they also had them ranged in 10 seconds or so. Uh, but, uh, you know, so the stage design and the staging area, uh, and, and I've seen it at other matches too. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. Sometimes uh, I feel like the, the Hunter match in California did a really good job making the staging areas like well removed from the shooting areas so that they were down in a ditch and you may have had to walk a hundred yards, 200 yards, sometimes maybe even more than 200 yards to get to the shooting area. They started the clock when you got closer and that way you, if you had to sit there for 20 or 30 minutes, which, which didn't really happen here. Uh, but, but there was that, that was the case in California. Sometimes people were sitting there for 45 minutes to an hour and they weren't able to watch the shooters in front of them shoot. And, and uh, you know, humans are, are creatures that detect movement and all that stuff. So it's pretty hard to avoid seeing things, uh, even though, you know, it's not, you're not supposed to. So, so I did notice that. But, but anyway, getting back on track here, gear management. It seemed to me like being able to get from the start to the shooting position in 10 to 12 seconds was about average. It didn't seem to have an effect on shooters' abilities to, to perform well on the stage, on my stage. Uh, dropping their gear and getting it out very quickly. It seemed to me like the shooters who performed the best were able to make that transition in around 20 seconds. So when you got to the flag from which you could see the targets, those shooters had everything that they needed deployed in about 20 seconds. So if you stand there and you have all your gear stowed, if you can get it out to an observable build, right? If you pull out your tripod and your binoculars and get them ready and get on glass with your rifle next to you, or pull out a bag or lay down with your binoculars, however you're going to range, if you can do that in about 20 seconds, that tended to be where the better teams were able, or better shooters, individuals, were, were able to get to glass, and it was efficient and smooth. They didn't have to fight with their gear. Some people ran up, dumped their pack 10 or 15 feet behind the shooting location. I ended up running back and forth shuttling equipment, and that took time. And although it didn't really affect finding the targets for some of those shooters, it did affect their mental state. And a lot of this, most of the shooting events that I go to and, and watch people shoot and participate in, it comes down to what I think as a mental performance over a skill performance because the skill of shooting at this point isn't as high as it could be, but what people are dropping points for are mental mistakes or, or, or mental distractions that cause them to not double-check their system. So gear management. There was no real gear advantage, and I was really hoping to see some crazy equipment and some cool ideas of how people equipped and strapped their stuff together. It seems to me like there really aren't optimal pack and chest rig configurations at this time. Everybody kind of struggled a little bit with their equipment, but getting it out fast, it's not ideal. You know, what works for hunter matches doesn't probably work for hunting or for other environments where you're going to be carrying that equipment. People tend to have it loosely slung or, or barely strapped in there so you could throw it down. But it's not, you know, if I was going to go five, six, seven, ten miles, I wouldn't carry it like I would at a hunter. And so uh, there, there really is no 
adaptive gear that'll give you an advantage at these events, at least not yet. And I was surprised about that. I thought people would have come up with cool little tricks to stow things securely and do the least amount of movements. I didn't, I didn't really see that. Um, moving from one position to the next, knowing what you need from one position to the next, a little bit of forethought seemed to carry over very well, but some shooters would build their first position, go to the second position, realize they needed something back at the first position, go back to get it, and I think you get the idea. That slows people down, and it distracts them from thinking about the shot process, and that distraction, at least in my observations, caused a lot of misses that, that probably shouldn't happen. Now, I didn't keep a tally, but there was a, a, a seemingly significant trend of missing high and low on my second target. Now, the, the targets were about four-tenths tall, I want to say, so they weren't super tall. And building a solid position and being able to break a solid shot without vertical deflection takes practice. And most of the misses were high and low. And the distance that we were at, you know, at first I thought because, you know, we had wind, uh, when we ROed it, we had very, very strong winds, you know, above 30 miles an hour. I think our highest was 36 or something. And then, you know, down like our low winds were like 28 or something. So on day two, uh, or the day one for the competitors, it was, you know, in the, in the high teens, and I was curious whether there was an element of aerodynamic jump, but at the distances, like the far target was 500, 500 yards, uh, I didn't, I don't, I don't think that was the issue. And what I think the issue was, uh, was kind of something that gets highlighted by the rifle craft drill and is going to be built into the unconventional skills assessment, the rifle craft USA that, that we're offering now out here in Colorado to, to test people's personal uh, shooting capabilities and quantify them. I think people were in such a hurry to get a shot off that they weren't checking their process appropriately and they were blowing shots high and low. Typically, the good shooters, had they didn't miss. And, and you knew who the good shooters were uh, for the most part, and those shooters had no issue. And, then as you, and, and, and you would expect that in skill from from the higher and more experienced shooters to not have those vertical deflections and i think that what we see with rifle craft is that you know people with experience or, or people that are winning matches of all styles they have good fundamentals and they're able to repeat that and that's what contributes to their ability to perform well across the board and as you as you go down from their performance uh, shooters don't quite understand the influence that they have on their groups and their point of impacts and I think that was reflected on my stage. Uh, hopefully we're able to teach and quantify and educate people by doing this Riflecraft USA. And we'll be able to quantify and map progress of people that come through that and show how their performance grows uh, with standardized metrics. Gear management. One thing that I have noted here is that I saw two separate Garmin watches fail to sync with their binoculars. So two shooters had the incorrect data, and it was very clear on the first shot the data was incorrect. Both of those shooters rechecked their watch, shot again with incorrect data. I said, nope, target one said whatever it was. They looked at their watch, they shot, they missed. They missed by like five, six mils elevation. 
looked at their watch again. Nope. Checked their, checked their data. Nope. And they trusted the watch and they missed the shot by massive amounts because it was uh, maintaining their prior stages uh, elevation, even though their binoculars range, target one, target two. Uh, two separate watches. I, now, I didn't keep track of the ones that worked. So in terms of like scientific observation, those observations were just noting, you know, when people had equipment issues on my stage, what were they? Two Garmin watches failed to provide the shooter with data that allowed them to shoot target one and then target two. One of them, it was target one, and the other one didn't repopulate for target two. So I, I, I can't explain that. I don't use it. I think it's a pretty cool idea. I like the idea of technology being able to provide us with added capability. But the more technology that I see and the fancy bells and whistles that I see, the more um, I'm educated by people in the industry that, that most of those bells and whistles don't work the way that they're supposed to. So I, I got to see two of those watches fail and I don't think they were shooters that were going to win, but nonetheless, like, you know, if you get a, a zero out of eight and, and that, um, that erodes a little bit of that trust, especially for something that's that expensive. Now I would like to test those watches, but there's no way in hell I'm going to spend 2000 bucks for something that I've watched fail twice on two different shooters. I watched a set of binoculars stop ranging. Um, the shooter pulled the batteries, put in new batteries and they worked. So I don't know if it was, uh, there were allegedly there were new batteries before the event started. Um, I don't I don't know what happened. And then uh, coming through some of the binoculars with compass features, I asked them afterwards if 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 I could look at the uh, compass because of my hypothesis of using the XY coordinates of compass uh, azimuth and distance to track a partner onto onto the target and. Uh, People were correct in that the compass azimuth was not consistent from device to device. And so, uh, you know, that being a product that is sold with a feature that claims to do something, you know, if you're off by f five degrees, uh, that, that, that's quite a bit, um, right? That's like 300 MOA or something. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the technology sounds good and seems cool, but if your Kestrel won't sync to your watch and your Kestrel doesn't uh, sync to your binos and, and there's problems syncing between these three devices. Um, so there, there were five instances of sync failure and then one battery issue. So hopefully uh, people that work in that industry can get that going because, you know, in 150 shooters to have five, five issues, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know if that's good or bad, but you know, fortunately, it's not not my industry to have to deal with. But um, that's a lot of money to spend when what really seems to work is a laser rangefinder and a hard data card strapped to your wrist that costs about five cents. So, uh, what you need now is are good binoculars. That works. You kind of have to have good binoculars and with a laser rangefinder in them, and then a hard data card. And that was what was successful for all the top shooters. All the top shooters and teams used a laser rangefinder and a hard data card. Uh, target detection. There were a lot of techniques for target detection, but at these hunter matches, now there, there's uh, the hunter matches are not unique in the locate, range, and engage style competition. 
but what is unique from the from the other outfits that I've done locate range and engages is that they put markers like big backers that are often visible with the naked eye next to the first target and then they say something like the targets are from the backer to the right or from the backer out and so being able to find that backer at these events is very important and it needs to happen very quickly now some of them blew away in the strong winds and then the ro was able to say here's a flag that guides you towards the first target but that was the case for everyone um there was one instance where that was only the case for Saturday, and then on Sunday the backer got put back, so there was a little bit of an advantage maybe then. But but otherwise, target detection uh, starts with looking for the backer and then finding the targets. Occasionally you might get on glass and see a target, and then you know there's no backer there, so you start looking to the left of it. But from my point of view as a competitor on the RO day, if you could find the backer, you kind of knew if you scanned to the right, you would find the targets. And that t- tended to be the case with, with all of these. People that used monoculars struggled to find targets, period, because they just didn't have the magnification in the field of view that you have with binoculars. And so at these events, the target detection largely depended on somebody's ability to quickly locate and quickly range those targets, and it happened the best with binoculars. Scanning left to right, if it's a left to right stage, is a, so I would I would watch some people get on the backer and start looking up and down and up and down and kind of zigzagging up and down from the left to the right instead of finding the backer and kind of starting to scan off to the right first. I think what worked at this match anyway is because most of the targets you just started scanning directly to the right and they all exposed themselves pretty quickly. Uh, but but there was there was some methods that took place that seemed like they hadn't thought about the stage design. And the stage design at the staging area, it says there are two targets, they're left to right. And so they would find the first target and then they would start looking up and down. I think, okay, well, this should be built into your process. Think about what it says and how you would tackle that rather than getting on there and going. Now, that's a mental mistake, I think, and, and, and I'm famous for some pretty spectacular mental mistakes, so I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at people and telling them that you know they suck. I'm saying that building into our process something that thinks around the design of the stage and the descriptions and how to utilize that effectively, um, that... Uh, could save some panic, and at these events, that target panic is real. Another thing that I saw was there was a the first shooting position was marked with a stake, and if you stood on that stake, in front of you, there were left and right limit markers. And so within those limit markers, you could see the targets. It was not uncommon for the shooters to set up six, seven, eight feet from that initial position and not line themselves up with the left and right limits and as a result spend an excessive amount of time looking for targets. I think that that uh, again is you're hurried to find the targets and you're thinking about finding the targets and, and you get tunnel vision and in that tunnel vision you forget that you're going to optimize finding the targets by using the system set up by the match director and the system the match director is get on that first position and use those left and right limits to find the target backers and then the targets. And so people were crippling themselves by not setting themselves up with a clear, direct 
line of sight to the first target backer, and that saved uh, a lot of shooters realized they couldn't see anything from where they were. They looked around, then they went over and found um, the 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 guides, and you know within seconds found the first target, and then usually within a few seconds later they found the second target. Now most of that happened Saturday because on Sunday again uh, people were just walking up and they knew where the targets were. But on the other stages, those techniques were very good at finding targets. And, and I shot it as a team this weekend, and, and those are the techniques that we used to utilize and find targets. And we found most of the targets relatively quickly using the guide-on system that the match directors set up. Uh, target acquisition. You kind of have to get used to finding a target and then looking over your binoculars or finding a landmark that you can reference because it looks different through binoculars than it does through your rifle scope and with your naked eye to set up your rifle system. Some some shooters would find the targets but then fail to find them through their rifle scope. Now, that's happened to me before, and I imagine it'll happen again because some of these targets are disguised or blended into the background that they're in, but some shooters just simply, they saw them, they saw them, they ranged them, and then they put their stuff down, they got on their rifle scope, and then had no idea where the targets were. And I think that um, of the lower scores that I had on my stage, it's because of that. The shooters just simply didn't get shots off on the targets because they couldn't reacquire the targets with their rifles and ended up timing out because they were going back and forth trying to relocate them. So the lower scores were not because a shooter shot eight shots and got a zero. The lower scores were simply because shooters were struggling to even get their shots off. And, and that's interesting to know because a lot of that is process-oriented and process-designed. So if you start building your process, you're going to start getting more points. And those are techniques that you can practice before going to the match. And from what I've seen, a lot of shooters can shoot okay, but a lot of points that are lost are because of shots not taken. And the shots not taken are elements of these events that can be trained and practiced at home and dry fired with a little creativity in uh, practice design. Now, on top of that, uh, we get to position. Some of the targets not found were because the, the shooter would come up and locate the target standing or kneeling on a tripod or standing on a tripod. And then they would get down prone and there would be bushes and sage blocking their visibility of the targets. And that comes with a little bit of practice and repetition, but you have to consider your firing position in terms of, you know, from where you saw your target. So if you can only see them standing up, like there are competition dynamic stages where if you don't locate the targets standing up, you might not be able to see the targets at all. In this case, a lot of shooters glassed high and tried to shoot low and didn't realize that that was going to be a problem until they got on their rifle and just um, could not find the target. And rather than thinking, oh, I need to get up high to shoot, uh, they just fished around looking left and right. I can't, I can't find it. They tried to scoot right. They tried to scoot left. But there were bushes in front of them. Some shooters had a high enough um, bipod where their optic went over the bushes or you could see the target through the bushes. But those shots usually clipped a branch or something, and you could see that the impacts were clearly... Um, 
thrown off by the branches as the bullets blasted through the, the bushes in the sagebrush because they'd be like 50 feet to the right, 50 feet to the left. And uh, most of those deflections, though, oddly, were right and left deflections, not vertical deflections in this case. And there was a lot of those. So thinking about where you glassed from and then thinking about your shooting position. Now, I, I like to shoot off my tripod because I think it's a skill that, that is perishable and I need more practice with it. And, and rather than just going for optimum performance, I tend to work on the things that I'm working on because matches are a great opportunity to expose your weakness and, and then test things out that you've been practicing to see how you're performing. So I'm a little bit different than some people in that I go and I try things that, that I know I've been working on. And so uh, I glassed off of the platform that I was going to shoot from to guarantee that my muzzle at least could see the, the target. So, and so most, uh, almost, well, most of the shots, not all of them, uh, were just shot off my tripod. Getting up high tends to help, but shooters struggle sometimes with getting off the ground because uh, that those are not traditionally practiced precision type shots. But again, that's why rifle craft is so valuable for events like this, because when your shooter number comes down, your hit probability goes up. And those hit probabilities are important at these events because you get uh, double the points for first round impacts. Right? You get two points for a first round, one point for a second round, zero points uh, after, after that. So being able to take a shot off of an elevated position is helpful, especially if you don't have point of impact shifts because despite the fact that these targets are a little larger than standard NRL or PRS targets, some of them are still not that small. I mean, we were shooting 12-inch squares and diamonds at, at 700 yards, so um, that's not, you know, that's not, <laughs> those aren't small targets, uh, but, but they're also... Um, I mean, they're they're not they're not huge targets, I guess. Uh, that, that I misspoke there, but um, your position matters, and your ability to have a repeatable and consistent point of impact is important for you to judge a correction, especially when there's winds out there. And 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 Friday and Saturday there were strong winds. Sunday there was basically no wind. So uh, being able to judge your mist and then judge the wind speed is going to be helpful when you're making your corrections for subsequent targets, especially targets uh, stages where there's four targets. You need to be able to carry that wind hold over, and knowing that where your shot went was because of environmentals and not you is going to contribute to a high hit percentage. So position was very important. Now, I saw people shoot standing off a tripod, kneeling off a tripod. I saw people with, with uh, the huge extension bipods, uh, low bipods. I even saw a few shooters shoot unsupported, you know, no bag. Um, one of them shot off their pack. Another one just kind of off their elbows. And uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. I saw shooters come through with no bag at all and was pretty impressed. They wanted to shoot the whole match with their rifle, a bipod, and binoculars. And that was, that was uh, pretty impressive to watch uh, them shoot like that. Uh, I even saw one guy go through and not range. He just wanted to kind of Kentucky windage it. So he took a shot at the first one, missed, made a correction, hit it. Took a shot at the second one, missed, made a correction, hit it, and then went over to the next stage and got a first round and a first round. I was like, Jesus, that's crazy. And, and he was you know, proud that that's the way he likes to shoot. And, um, and he did well, considering. And uh, you know, getting a six without a rangefinder on a two-target, two-position stage is pretty freaking gnarly. So 
Uh, most of the positions, though, on my stage that I watch people through were bipods and a rear bag. Some people had two or three bags, and, and I think that those contributed to more problems than they did solve them. But knowing your system and the, the height, you know, the highest that you can get prone, you've got a bag that works, and the same bag works for a low prone would be helpful because you want to have the least amount of equipment. At least that tended to be the case in watching people come through uh, my stage and knowing how to set up and execute their shot. One thing that's, that's uh, puzzled me a little bit is how people put, uh, there, were, there were several tack tables, and although uh, I recently bought a tack table, it doesn't fit on my Arca rail, you know, it just wobbles there, it's, it's not the right size, so I haven't been able to mess around with a tack table at all. And, you know, I hate buying equipment that doesn't work, so I'm not sure if I'm going to get a tack table having, you know, spent a hundred bucks on one that doesn't work. Um, but watching people shoot off of a tack table is, is interesting to me. Uh, one technique that was used was long bipods and then a, a tack table tripod setup that was basically, you know, that, that way they could shoot almost all positions from the exact same height, you know, just rip out the bipod, the triple pull as long as it gets, and then they're tripod is always set up to the height where they put a rear bag on the tack table and then and then shoot um in the wind that's a little bit wobbly but what was interesting to me more than that was when shooters had a tack table and they put a bag on it and then their rifle on it when the bag is perpendicular uh you know the narrower length than it is the long length uh there's more wobble on the rifle because of the balance point and the way uh, shooters are excited and watching. So uh, watching shooters put the bag on the tack table was really fascinating to me. And almost all of the shooters that put the bag sideways such that it was longer left and right than it was forward and back, almost all of them had windage issues. They were missing left and right or their shots were wildly left and right and wobbly compared to shooters that put the bag lengthwise that had more bag contact with the rifle surface. And I don't put the bag sideways, uh, but, but I was noticing that um, shooters were putting their rifles on there uh, it, that way, and that reduces the surface area contact, and it had a point of impact uh, effect on those shooters because they're excited and it's not entirely stable. And um, it was something that I noted. Now, I didn't record the numbers to tell if they were statistically significant or not, but uh, chances are uh, that would be hard to quantify just as an RO by myself uh, anyway. But I did notice that most of the people that put their bag like that missed those shots uh, altogether. And so uh, that's something for you to note and practice on paper to see if you do have point of impact shifts when the bag is oriented laterally versus uh, lengthwise. Those are, those are things that I think we need to quantify and put on paper. They're, they're things that will be tested uh, in a certain extent at the unconventional skills assessment that, that Frank and I are hosting here in Colorado regularly. And, and those are data points and technique elements that shooters will learn about in detail and know exactly how to use what technique that works better and at what point does their hip percentage change as different techniques, shooting positions, um, you know, uh, stability factors, wind speeds, all of those data elements will be put into a document to show the shooter how to optimize their performance under various circumstances so that they can make educated decisions 
on the fly as to how to make and optimize their best shots. But those are some things that I observed. Now, this, this is only about a quarter of my list, and this episode is already getting a little bit long, so I'm going to wrap this up just by talking about uh, those, highlighting those elements one more time. Gear management, the best shooters had the minimal equipment, right? They had one bag, one rifle, one set of binos, hard set of data, on a hard data card, no technology. Technology didn't seem to work for anyone. Most shooters ran up carrying their rifle and had their tripod slung somehow or strapped through straps on the side of their pack. They got onto the shooting position. They deployed their equipment. They they got to the shooting position in 10 to 12 seconds. They deployed their equipment and found their target in 20 to 30 seconds. And that gave them three minutes to shoot two targets from two positions, which was ample time. Many, many shooters finished with over a minute left. Data management, hard data cards work. They don't crash, they don't need batteries, they're very detailed, and if the DA swings a lot, right, you just you can adjust your, your elevation a little bit here and there, but it didn't seem to matter. Target detection, scanning left to right from the backer, using the markers to orient yourself to optimize your ability to detect that backer and then the subsequent targets. Target acquisition requires that you find a landmark to orient your rifle scope to when you're building your position so that you can get on target extremely fast. Practicing standard build and breaks doesn't do that. Practicing standard, you know, shooter ready, drop your rifle onto your bag and shoot, kind of, you know, that, that, that doesn't teach shooters to build, landmark, and identify, right? Getting all your shit out being distracted by whatever you're distracted by when you're panicking, running up to a stage, building a position, finding the targets, indexing something, and then putting your rifle on there does work. Uh, the the um, NRL Hunter DFAT targets are pretty effective when it comes to doing that because you can index and find targets at home dry fire, which is which are it's a pretty sick thing, and, and I've messed around with those. Uh, although I'm pretty good at finding targets and indexing anyway, I think that it's really fun, and for sure it's helped my speed at locating finding targets. Um, and then position. Make sure that when you're building your position, you build it considering where you saw the targets from and that height. And if you find it standing up, drop down while you're still on glass to make sure that your muzzle and your eyes will be able to detect those targets from where you're shooting at and that there's no bushes obstructing the path of the bullet between where you are to where the target is because there are massive influences on the bullet at 500 yards when it goes through bushes, right? I watched it over and over again. And although it was entertaining, uh, it was frustrating for the shooters to feel like they pulled a good shot uh, only to watch their bullet land very far from their target. Um, If you have tripod, practice tripod. If you're going to use high uh, bipods, use high bipods, but make sure that where you glass from, you're able to see and you're able to get your rifle to that position where you glassed from so that you can make the shot, not hit objects, and have a stable, consistent point of impact. Unsupported is something that I'd like to get better at. 
um, and unconventional shooting positions off bags and bushes and not using anything is something that I'd like to start moving more towards. But make sure that when you practice, whatever you're going to go out with, you shoot on paper at 100 to see if you have point of impact shifts using that particular technique and quantify it so that you know that you're able to make the shot. You don't scratch your head wondering why you missed high or low. On Again, on my stage, I saw shooters' fundamentals break down and not understand that they were influencing the vertical dispersion of their group because they were building positions that induced vertical dispersion. And if you need help with that, look up uh, the Riflecraft Unconventional Skills Assessment on riflecraft.com. It's something that we're going to be educating shooters on, essentially one-on-one, so that they can optimize their shooting and, and put in work where they need it and, and maintain skills that they already have. But if you build your weakness and work your weakness, you're going to have better performance down the road, uh, guaranteed. So uh, I'm going to stop this, and I'm going to record the next one, uh, but I don't want them to be too long. And um, so until next time. <laughs>